Welcome back to Season 3 of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Stefano Bini. In this series of podcasts, we are highlighting the best presentations from the January 2020 San Francisco Digital Orthopedics Conference, otherwise known as DOCSF, presented in partnership with UCSF's Department of Orthopedic Surgery, and the November 2019 DOCSF Berlin Conference, presented in partnership with Frontiers Health. On this, episode 14 of season three, we dive into operations. Ops is really cool. We love ops. Ops is how a leadership team puts in place the infrastructure necessary for change to succeed. Understanding ops is a key aspect of successful execution. And as you know, execution is everything. We now bring you two talks from people with black belts in ops and a great moderator who can ask the tough questions. Christy Henderson, RN, is currently the clinical ops leader for Amazon Care, which is potentially a model for how we will deliver care in the future. Dr. John Madison was assistant medical director and chief medical officer at Kaiser Permanente, where he led many of KP's digital initiatives. Moderating the conversation will be Richard Capra, the chief academic officer at UCSF's Department of Orthopedic Surgery. Let's hear what they had to say from the DOCSF stage. Operations. That's how some of us live every single day. And it's kind of interesting to define what is operations, what is included in operations. I'm in the healthcare field. I've been in the healthcare field for many, many years. Is it when the call center, when the patient calls into the call center, is it when the patient, as Kevin Bozick was discussing yesterday, is it surrounding the perioperative services? Is it when you have your analytics team and your programmers working on heat maps to look at disease stratification in a city surrounding where you live and where you work? Is that part of operations? Is operations when you discharge the patient to home health care? I would say that it's yes, 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 and yes. It just depends on how big you are and where you are across the country. I get a chance to work with a lot of academic healthcare centers and listen to what they do and what they haven't done and what they're about to do. And it's still the same story. We all have the same problems. We have the same opportunities. And yet we're all on different paths. Some have solved the problem. Some have yet to solve the problem. Some have yet to implement what others have already gone and done. So it's interesting to see that we're all scattered all over. I wrote something down from, again, I'm in the healthcare field, but I took some notes on one of our speakers, and the speaker's main ideas, the main idea was eliminate obstacles, easily accessible, using data to drive programming, make it personal, and no silos. Does anyone remember who that was? Matt, you're laughing. It's Peloton. And I thought, that's exactly what we do. That's exactly what we are striving to do with every single patient, every single phone call, every discharge. So I think as we talk about operations, we may be talking about a lot of different segments of operations, but I think today we're going to kind of streamline it a little bit and talk about digital transformation and how digital has helped in very many settings. So First, I'm going to bring up Christy Henderson, who's the clinical ops leader for Amazon Care. 
And we've got a lot of questions, but anyway, we're going to hear a lot about your experience. And I know you've got a broad experience in operations. So please come on up and give us an intro. Well, thanks for hanging in here to hear a couple more hours of speakers. So I love that this got set up with the cat video because I had names on every one of those cats' faces. <laughs> so I'm going to go through a little bit of my journey. I've got about 15 minutes, and then John's going to follow me, and then we're going to do questions because that's what I really want to get to because that's where the meat of it all is. But let me give you my perspective of, and really my journey and maybe my biases around my presentation as well. But my whole journey, I'm a nurse practitioner. Um, and practiced in emergency medicine for a long time. Now that I work in the tech field, I don't tell how long that is because I already feel old. But I took a state telehealth program and then uh, replicated that in another state and then took a similar approach to a national program and now I'm at Amazon. So taking it through a pretty wide range of different organizations, different geographies, trying to test the model and figure out what was different around the real implementation, getting operational excellence and really getting the outcomes that we want. So I will say that the first place I did this is in Mississippi. It happens to be one of only two centers of excellence for telehealth by HRSA. And the reason I say that is because I, one of the speakers yesterday was talking about, you know, you're never going to recruit or you're not going to do whatever in some of these places. And let me tell you what, I, he was spot on, but I overcame those challenges and you can too. So if you can do it in the deep south in Mississippi with no money, with no providers, some of the worst health outcomes in the country, no broadband, all those things that you think of, then we can do this here and at a large scale. So I'm going to go through about six different kind of pointers and all of them have a tip at the end of those and are just things that through the whole journey of those different settings, things that I learned, some of them seem very intuitive. You may be trying to do them, but what I'd say is that most people don't go all the way through and don't maintain those things. And so I'm going to go through this and tell you some of the things that I think are most critical to a successful operation from implementation, if that's a digital health initiative, or maintaining that integrated tech-enabled health system. So first of all, know your problem. And that doesn't mean just say, oh, diabetes is this prevalent and this many people have it. It means like to the organization, the person paying for it. What is the real value proposition to them? And then what's the value proposition to the user of the service that you have? And I think that seems pretty intuitive, but people oftentimes don't get deep enough. And if the organization that you're implementing this in doesn't know they even have a problem, if you're trying to fix a problem they didn't know they have somewhere else, along the way, there's going to be challenges with that. I look around often for where the challenges are. Who are my naysayers? Who's going to oppose what I'm going to say? Why? And how can I convert them? And I try to do that even before so that the phone call to the one paying for it doesn't come in that says, you know, this is not a good idea. It's causing friction. It's making so-and-so mad. And so if you can get ahead of that and prepare and give situational awareness to your leadership team, that always results in a better outcome. Know your audience and the language you should use. And then what happens if you don't do this? And so people always used to tell me, you know, we can't afford telehealth. And I was like, you can't afford not to do it. And let me tell you why. And if I can do that and convince them of the value of it, then you can get a lot further. 
And so my tip is, and this is a, an Amazon approach, many of you may do this, but it was eye-opening when I started really putting this as a part of my implementation plans, which is to create a fake press release. And so that is today on October whatever, this is gonna happen, and write it like it's on the front page of the paper. And with that comes a document that is your frequently asked questions. What do you know people are worried about, thinking, and asking each other? And go ahead and write all of that down, and be be ready for it. It'll uncover some amazing blind spots that you had and really set you up for success. So it's a great exercise. If you're not doing it, I would highly recommend it. So the attention to the planning, this seems pretty obvious as well, but when we say write a business document of all the requirements that you need, many times that's a small group of people writing all the different things, timelines, the project, all the details of it but not all the time have they really gone into the detail that's needed of all the dependencies, all the different user perspectives and the stakeholders. If you can do that, you'll avoid a lot of the pitfalls and missteps that oftentimes will result in either a delayed over budget, one of those nightmare of situations that often ends up causing people trouble with implementing and maintaining a program. Be realistic and don't cut corners. And so one of the other things that you'll get is along the journey, you'll be asked if you can do this with less money and less people as the money gets tighter and tighter. So you've got to keep that energy and momentum. You've also got to sit down and understand understand the non-negotiables, and I'll speak to that in just a little bit. Engage the user, and so I would say that if the user is a patient, if the user are clinicians, if the user is somebody else, whoever the user is, the users should be involved in determining the requirements and how you're gonna implement it and what's realistic from a project plan. They're the ones that are gonna identify those dependencies in other teams that you may not have thought about. And so one of the last health systems that I worked in, we actually built scrum teams that, and if you're not an agile user, then that is an agile term, but scrum teams, we actually put our clinicians, we had uh, really robust teams of nurses and physicians, really as a part of those implementation workflows that made all the difference in the world. So it also comes with, you gotta know what perfect is or what you want it to look like. And so build your happy path from start to finish all the way through the journey. And so maybe that's a, you know, a digital initiative that you're implementing in your inpatient or in your outpatient facility. From the entry point all the way to the end of it, what does it need to look like? And work backwards from what your goal is. And so the goal is around whether it's better health, happier patients, happier clinicians, whatever it may be. Start from that and work all the way backwards and then you'll have your happy path and then you'll know when you're deviating from that. And this is something that you'll wanna do over and over. So if all of a sudden things aren't on track and your metrics are falling off, to be able to come back in and say, okay, here's what we had designed, here's where the problems are and you'll uncover areas to refocus. Three other mindsets that I think are really important in your operation, your leadership team, and all of your teams that you're working with is to question assumptions. And now that I'm in an e-commerce giant and learning their approach to things and they're questioning everything all of us from healthcare do and say, and it's the most refreshing thing ever. We have a lot of biases and a lot of legacy behaviors that oftentimes are just because, or they were relevant you know, maybe 10 years ago with the last leadership team, but they may not be now. So question everything, push on it all based on your goal. If the goal is customer satisfaction, improved health, whatever it is, always go back and question what you're doing. Be okay with ambiguity. A lot of times in healthcare, we'll try to build this perfect 
project, our perfect program, and wait to implement it till everything's answered, and you're not okay with real ambiguity, and you've gotta go out there, test stuff before it's perfect to get feedback from the user to be able to know what's next and keep iterating on things. And then there needs to be a culture that it's okay to fail, and I wouldn't even call it failing, it's learning, and it's that learning is gonna help you pivot and create a better product or service or program or whatever you're operating. So those three things are things the whole culture needs to be infused with. Be willing to be bold or misunderstood, however you want to look at it. There's going to be resistance to change no matter what. If you think about telehealth, everyone talks about all the incredible opportunities there are, the great outcomes that there are, but there's still this resistance to change and people will default to the old ways. And so you, you're going to have to be okay with that and go from the very beginning and commit to what your vision is. You're going to get a lot of pressure. There's going to be phone calls to the CEO. There's going to be phone calls all over the place of things that just don't feel good along the way. And that has to be a commitment from the leadership team from the beginning that we think this is the right way to go and we're all in and don't cut corners here in any way. One of the tips that I have here that I think is important is to write down your tenets from the beginning. And so the tenets are your beliefs. And these are often things that maybe aren't clearly defined and wouldn't be a part of the project plan, but a good one for healthcare is around what is more important, quality or customer satisfaction? Because they don't always coexist. And so coming into a, a tech industry where everything is about customer satisfaction, the customer may not be happy with what you did, but it was the right thing and the best quality. And it was meeting the standards. It was maybe not the prescription they want, or maybe it wasn't the order that they wanted, or whatever it may be. But you're going to have to set down your tenets from the very beginning, because as you're going through the journey, there's going to be trade-offs that you have to make to, to try to get to your goal. And you need to, as an organization and as a team, understand that. And then if you're stakeholders and you need champions everywhere, so as you're implementing a digital health program and you have your CIO and you have your clinicians and you have all these different parts of the organization involved, you need a champion in every one of them and every one of them need to be vested in the outcome of this so that they feel like it's their project. That seems pretty intuitive as well, but oftentimes it's them doing it to us and instead of all of us together trying to achieve a goal. So if you can really make that shift, it makes a huge difference. The fourth one I would call out is that caution, humans are involved. And when you have humans involved, things don't go as planned. And what they say and what they say they want is not how they behave. And so you've got to do some just good observations to watch and see if your patients or your clinicians or whoever is using the product to watch how they behave and are they using it as you assume that they would and if not, adjust. Scope creep is huge. You're going to get in there and everyone's going to have more ideas. And all of a sudden, you're going to get this list of new things. And so you've got to really stick to the original plan and prevent that so that you don't get diluted and pulled in 400 directions and nothing getting implemented effectively. Solution bombing, those are the people that come into the meeting and they don't come every time and they come about every quarter and they've got a brand new idea. They're not an expert in the field that they're talking in, but they want to tell you all these lists of things you should do and could do and to think about. So you got to solve for that in the beginning and have expectations for your committee meetings, your governance and everything else, or the meetings will go off astray. And that happens in everywhere. That's not unique to 
digital health, but definitely one as you're implementing new technology that can easily get you off track. Perfection, especially in healthcare, this is one that paralyzes us from moving forward. And so in Amazon, we refer to the one and two-way doors. If it's a one-way door, there's a lot more rigor around our thinking. If it's a two-way door, meaning it's not going to hurt a customer, our brand, or whatever it may be, then that means we can go out there and try something without losing. We can pull back from it and make a different decision without any real consequences. And so as you're making decisions about things, be bold in those that are two-way door initiatives, but ones that are potentially one-way doors to think twice. Yesterday, we talked a little bit about human capital and the need for recruiting the best. We got to understand as we're implementing new technology, we're also changing what people do. And so somebody was paging everybody before. Somebody was answering those phone calls before. Somebody was whatever it was. You list whatever task you want in healthcare. And so as we implement this, there's a whole another world of learning and development that needs to happen around upskilling and reskilling labor to really what this new world looks like. We can change curriculum so that when people come out of medical school, nursing school, whatever school it is, that they're more equipped to use digital technology in the healthcare arena. But we've got to remember the people that are sitting there. And to just go train on a new technology doesn't take into account we're really changing that profession or that role in the hospital. So a really important one as well. You can't communicate too early or too often. That's a no-brainer, but it's still probably one of the hardest things to do if you ask any leadership team in any hospital. Somehow somebody didn't get the message and they're either upset they didn't know or feel like they weren't engaged in the work. Excitement will fade and fatigue will set in and then all of a sudden behaviors start reverting back to the old ways and people get really tired. And that's exactly when most things start to slow down and not keep the traction that you want and aren't you won't see the full benefit of your program. And so you've got to create operational excellence and behaviors like in meetings, looking at results, driving to the next goal, keep pushing the team and keep striving for the next level of success and excellence. That's the only way to keep everybody engaged or everyone will just start reverting back. So you've got to keep the numbers in front of everybody and be obsessed with the metrics of success. Governance is a pretty big one. That one was talked about yesterday as well. So every one of these projects, I've learned a lot through all of them, and the larger they got, they got even more people to really have to get the governance correct. But when I started my very first one, and when we first did our first telehealth program in 99, way before anyone was calling it telehealth, we had box TVs and point-to-point -point T1 lines, the whole bit. You know, we didn't really appreciate the complexity of what we were doing. We were just trying to solve a specific problem. But I would tell you today, and even in the program that I implemented with the last health system that I did, we had large governance that we had a charter set up that really outlined the roles and responsibilities of everybody, and we held everybody to it. There were weekly updates and business reviews that showed the numbers and held everybody accountable to that. And you didn't just report on them over and over and over. And so often in healthcare, that's really the trend. You'll see it's red, yellow, or green, and we'll talk about it over and over, but there's really not, okay, what's next? And then, okay, that didn't work, well, now what's next? And really holding people really to go to the next level in the highest bar. You need unwavering support, and really from the beginning, just going ahead and calling out that somebody important in the community, somebody important in the hospital is going to call and ask for this to stop because it's making somebody upset or uncomfortable. And so owning that at the beginning and buffering the leaders from that is really important so that you don't get too much friction and get slowed down. 
This is where I'd say that the tenants and optionality are tested throughout, meaning that you'll have somebody that says, that's great, but not me. I'm different and I don't wanna do that. And so you have to be all in and be willing to push through all that. And so again, if you can call that out at the beginning, that really takes the pressure off of the leaders that are gonna get a phone call and maybe have a lot of resistance from people. The tenets, like I said, are really your beliefs and things that you really need to put forward from the beginning. Is quality or satisfaction more important? Is speed or volume more important? I mean, there's all kinds of things that you can lay out there and really understand what are the things that the team has committed to that they're not gonna back off of. And the last one that I'll say is trust. And this one is one of trust with your teams trust with patients as well, but don't let the project details, timelines, and everything else cloud your judgment. You can all of a sudden get into meetings and you're going, okay, I did that, I did that, I met that deadline, check, 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 and then everybody behind you is saying, you know, this makes no sense. Well, that's called um, reliance on a project plan and you're getting too dependent on technology thinking it's going to solve everything, when in fact it's really that operational, it's the people, it's the workflows, it's the communication that really makes projects a success. So you got to be okay listening to that voice and not get miss the forest for the trees. Listen to them, pivot from your program and adjust it to what's really meaningful so that you're not just going through the project plan, checking off boxes and saying I implemented it on time. And so the tip of that is to let common sense prevails. And any of people that have worked for me know I say that all the time. Common sense prevails. Common sense prevails. Don't go to that policy and follow the policy if that in fact is not what's best for our customer and our patients. That's when you get complete approval to go ahead and not follow that and come to us and let us make the policy better. So that really should be a culture of trust and one where they can really have free reign to be able to question everything and hold leaders accountable for making sure they're implementing a good project. So those are kind of my six tidbits of operational excellence and how to really implement a good program and push through this to get the goals and the outcomes that you want. John? Our next speaker from Kaiser Permanente is Dr. John Madison. John is the Assistant Medical Director in the CMIO. And I know you guys are working on a lot of digital transformation. And the reason I know that is I get insight because my daughter works for KP Ventures. And so I get invited to your little mixers in the evening time. And you guys have whole teams of people working on digital transformation and just that whole piece of how do you transform and bring in new technology. So I'm excited that you're here today with us. Thank you. So that was a absolutely fabulous presentation from Christy. Uh, every word of it is true and can only be spoken from the lens of experience. I'm going to try and cover a lot of ground really quickly about some of the do's and don'ts and the principles and how to operationalize tech at an institutional level. So Kaiser Permanente has over 200,000 employees and I have been co-leading the telemedicine projects at the national level, and I led the electronic health record implementation, and my I didn't lead it. I built the team and led the team that did the deployment. Obviously, we had thousands of people actually working on it. And in any given year, we have about 200 active projects. And so generally, I know what the right thing to do is. And as Winston Churchill once said, uh, about the Americans always get the right answer to something after they've exhausted every other possibility. And so I've exhausted lots of possibilities that didn't work well. And so uh, it was great to hear Chrissy's talk because it was just right on. So 
I like to think about we're living in a plecosystem economy. A plecosystem is a term that I made up as a contraction of multi-platform ecosystem. And uh, one of our earlier speakers highlighted the fact that we really need to pay attention to architecture so that we don't get one, you know, best of breed that are on different platforms is just a non-starter. And it's a real battle to make sure that you don't end up trying to support too many different platforms, but there is not a single platform for everything. So judicious thinking about how you manage the PLECO system in your large institution is critical. Another term I made up is the diodarity, and what I mean by that is, as opposed to singularity, where the machine and the human are equal, or the machine surpasses the human performance capability, the diodarity is where we're really heading, and that is that it's a collaboration between humans and machines in the world of machine learning. And so these two constructs, the PLECO system and the diodarity, are really going to shape everything about the future in healthcare. And then finally, a digital transformation really is a team sport and it's a continuous initiative. So I'm going to go through a series of things, starting off with a couple of quotes. An old African proverb says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. So it takes a lot longer. Matthew Holt, who's uh, here, founder of Health 2.0, once asked me in the States, why does it take you guys so long, John, to get things going at Kaiser? And I said, it's because of this proverb. It takes us a long time to get to the starting line, but once we get rolling, we're unstoppable because we go together. The second is the sci-fi author, William Gibson, who famously said, the future is already here, it's just unevenly distributed. And there's a lot of truth to that in the tech world now. I like to add the fact that it's unevenly distributed, converged, operationalized, and scaled, because the convergence, operationalization, and scaling of technology is where the hard work is. The technology is actually the easiest part of that equation. And then finally, there's a Japanese proverb that says, vision without strategy is a hallucination. And that absolutely reveals the pathogenesis of a lot of system failures is a vision without a strategy. So Gary Kovacs mentioned five principles. I added a little color commentary and color, and then two additional sort of principles that fit with his taxonomy. So everything's open, which is better, faster, cheaper. Strategy and execution are directly linked, but iterative. So you don't link your execution to a strategy and stick with it. And as uh, Christy highlighted, you need to constantly revisit things. Different horses for different courses, but applying the same principles to different products and different projects leads to different implementation strategies. The principles remain the same, but the strategies vary depending upon how big, how many people are affected, how big the impact is, and so forth. Third one he mentioned is argue the assumption. This is really critical. Most big project failures, IBM Watson is a perfect example, huge failure, huge failure. I spoke to their top engineers and architects right after they won at Jeopardy, and I told them that they had architected the, the product to win at Jeopardy that had absolutely no relevance to how to win in healthcare. It's taken them 10 years, and they're now reconstituting their third team to get it right. They failed based upon early assumptions that were, in fact, challenged internally. How do I know? Because their CMO at the time is a friend of mine, and he fought that battle and lost. And then to independent thinking, team diversity is really critical. I can't highlight that enough. Another sci-fi writer, I'm blanking on his name right now, said that other minds may not be as intelligent as you, but they think differently. And it is that difference in perspectives and paradigms and heuristics that really bring value to the diversity of a team. Speed over time. 
We, our mantra was crawl, walk, run. If you go too fast, you get burned. And the two I added are knowing when to implement new tech is critical. Too early can be as costly or more costly than implementing too late. And I think IBM, that's part of their problem, but it was mostly around architecture with Watson. And then finally, leadership must model and exude confidence in the project. Absent that, you have real problems. So this is what I call the incremental exponential gap or the curse of the visionary. It's really easy for a visionary to see where the tech is going to end up. But it's really hard for a visionary to tell how long that's going to take. One of the rare exceptions to that is Ray Kurzweil, who has a track record of long-term predictions that's just remarkable. But most people have a very hard time seeing when is the right time to jump in with a particular technology because of this convergence, generalization, and operationalization and scaling. Perfect examples of that, the Apple Newton, great device, never captured the market until the iPad came along with pinch and unpinch and the ability to modify screen size and a number of other, you know, relatively minor enhancements that the Newton just didn't have. Same thing with machine learning and NLP. I just threw this in because this is a shot out of my hotel window this morning. Those of you who missed the sunrise, it was gorgeous. And I put it in to reflect the fact that digital health is really in the early phases of the dawn. And so this is dawn this morning. There is so much more ahead than what lies behind us. So the first principle I want to talk about is aligning leadership educating them as to what the hazards are, how to get their support when things get rough. We had our first site where we had a leader that was 100% all in on the project. He retired, a new guy came in, and he had no political capital to spend. He had heard how difficult the HR implementations were, and he basically told his leadership team, don't talk to John, I'm going to protect our team from the EHR project. That was not helpful, but we had no choice because the site prep had already been ongoing for the six months preceding the retirement. And we couldn't cut over to another medical center without great cost in dollars and time. Beware of the bumper sticker techie innovation officer who has never delivered a product through the entire life cycle. So this is really important for all of you to know when you're selling a product into an organization. If the lead person you're talking to has never delivered a product, him or herself, throughout the entire life cycle, be very, very wary of bumper sticker leadership. Second principle, set clear expectations. When I advocated for the national rollout of an electronic health record, I said, this will just be pouring the concrete for the house. It'll be another three decades that we'll be building the house on top of it. And I said that at five weeks, about 5% of the docs will be happy. At six months, about 30% will be okay. By the end of the year, 90% of them won't go back to paper. When my team implemented Epic at Kaiser, it was my seventh health record. I wrote and implemented my first health record decades before. And then I said at the end of the year, 10% of the people will chronically complain with or without a health record. So you have to be aware of that. It's important to set expectations about the duration of any disruption, the type of disruption, and the downsides and risks. Next principle is perpetual optimization. So because we just poured the concrete, and I'm referring a lot to the health record, but this applies to other projects as well, we have done more to advance quality, cost, patient safety, outcomes in the years since the deployment of the health record than we had in the first couple of years of the health record. And we have a monthly meeting that involve our CFO, our COO, our chief quality officer and chief medical information officer. And I should mention that I am CMIO emeritus. We hired a new CMIO and I'm a strategic consultant to Kaiser at this point. And so we have very specific criteria, a ranking system, because we get 100 times as many requests for enhancements and optimizations as we have time and resources to manage. So how you triage those in ways 
that give you the biggest bang for the buck is really critical. And a lot of what I'm telling you is not necessarily for someone in a large institution for how to do it, but it's for how you as entrepreneurs can recognize if you're dealing with an institution that understands these principles and manages towards them because they can break you. It's really easy to have a failed implementation, a failed pilot. In fact, we have vastly more failed pilots than successful pilots. They don't go on to deployment because of the neglect of these kinds of principles. So take these as a metric that you can use to assess your first, second, and third sites where you deploy because absent experience in these areas puts you at risk. Engage all stakeholders. This is really critical, and, and I'll, I'll give an example. We had labor shop stewards on our leadership team that were there for all of our significant decisions, and it served us very, very well, and with one exception. When we went to train, we had already implemented three or four medical centers. We were going to the fifth medical center, and we went to train their respiratory therapists. And the respiratory therapists basically filed a union complaint because we were using respiratory therapists from a different union in a different part of the state to train the respiratory therapists in a different part of the state. And they called foul, and we had to start over with the whole process. Engage the critics. Christy referred to this. Some of the best course corrections we've had have come from people who are habitual curmudgeons. Bring them in, and you'd be surprised what may happen. I had a board member. Open notes is where the doctor signs the note. It automatically files to the patient's personal health record as well as to the institutional record. And there's just this huge resistance to it because doctors imagine this as being a horrible thing. And so a board member, happened to be an orthopedist, said, I want to help. I think this is awesome. And it was only six months later that he told me that he admitted the fact that he volunteered to be part of the project because he knew it was going to fail and he wanted to be the first to blow it up. But after he used it himself, he realized that it was actually great. And he became by far the biggest proponent and advocate for the project because he had been proven wrong in his assumption that it would be a terrible thing. Another principle is understand variation across the site. So there's a lot of variation within a single institution, whether it's Kaiser Permanente or Anthem Blue Cross or United Healthcare, whatever, lots of variation in both leadership and governance, in both formal and informal leadership. So knowing that people with a title may not necessarily be the one that people listen to and pay attention to. There are a lot of informal leaders out there. You've witnessed this. Those of you practicing physicians know that informal leadership is often much more influential than those who get the title and the pay boost. So be clear about finding who has decision authority and budget authority. A lot of people will tell you that they have that authority and they don't. Check and double check. Carefully document and communicate risks associated with any budget cuts. So when there's an announcement that they got to cut the budget and you're getting a 10 or 20 or 30% reduction in the budget for your project, be very clear and articulate about what the costs of that budget cut might be. Communication, oftentimes less is more. So over-communicate with short messaging. Pithy mantras for your deployment team are really helpful. Put the patient first really helps resolve conflicts between different stakeholders. Simplify or die is a mantra I just implemented about five years ago, and it has to do with simplify the number of platforms in the architecture, resulting in a lower total cost of ownership and a smaller cybersecurity target. Red is our friend refers to the fact that people are afraid to call out red on their project and report up that they're in red status in either scale or scope, budget, or timeline. 
And we advocated, Diana Bologna was the one who made this a mantra, RED gives us the ability to focus more resources to help out a project that's in trouble in a particular area. And finally, uh, pick up the phone. Millennials will text and email forever and never pick up the phone. And getting them when they get stuck, and you just see this vicious cycle of emails going on, it gets incredibly antagonistic, or increasingly antagonistic. It's important that you encourage people to pick up the phone and actually talk to each other. Building trust is critical. Christy covered this really well. Recognize the 50% burnout rate in physicians. You really have to be sympathetic to the fact that people are just waiting for that last straw. Use lots of metrics and key performance indicators. And pick metrics that are easily accessible, that are not too costly to gather, and that are really relevant to the benefits that you're looking for. Stage the change. So one of the things is what you don't want to do is bring in a new product that standardizes care in some way without making an initial effort to standardize best practices across departments, across facilities in the institution. Because if the product comes with thou shalt all do it the same, at the same time, it backfires. Protect key elements of the deployment lifecycle. When the timeline slips in any way, there are four areas that typically get compromised, system integration, testing, training, and support. Any one of those four, when they're shortchanged because, and Christy said, don't let that timeline guide you. Use common sense. Do not cut those four areas in ways that could jeopardize the entire project. And then never start an implementation that's disruptive in any way during a bad flu season or over the December holidays. It's funny because it's so common sense obvious, but you'd be surprised how many people violate that. Recognize legitimate variability between different providers, different facilities. There are lots of functional ways to get things done, but we need to be very careful to identify what are dysfunctional variabilities and eliminate them from the process as much as possible. Ensure that your minimum viable product is highly focused on saving time, focus initial training on a few critical workflows so that you get the core stuff right, and then you can layer on additional functionality and services over time. But if you overwhelm people with too much training, it's too stressful and counterproductive. Make sure they get the basic stuff right and then layer on top of that. Start small, the right location, the right people first. Recognize that large organizations typically have competing silos and business units, and this is true of all large institutions, where one silo starts a project, another silo really wanted to get that project, and then you see those kinds of problems. So when you see that happening, call it out and make sure that you get the silos talking to each other again. Finally, be transparent on data usage. If you need the data to tune the application, fine, explain that. If you don't need the data, don't retain it. Breaches are very costly. And don't sell or repurpose any data that includes clinical data without clear disclosure and consent. Celebrate success. Very important to keep people motivated. And then last slide. This is hanging on the wall of Health and Human Services in Washington, D.C. And it's from Hubert Humphrey. It says, it's been said that the moral test of government, and it's especially true of healthcare is how that government treats those who are in the dawn of life, the children, those who are in the twilight of life, the elderly, and those who are in the shadows of life, the sick, the needy, and the handicapped. And what's that got to do with implementation and product management? At every step of a project, there are decisions that we make that have either 
inconspicuous or undocumented consequences in terms of social equity and health equity. And it may seem a little bit out of scope for an entrepreneur or technologist, but in fact, quite the contrary is true. Just imagine if Facebook had adults in the C-suite and they could make some real decisions about protecting people's privacy. So don't discount your role in managing towards the imperative for social equity and health equity. Thank you very much. I'm going to start it off and bring it back for those who are entrepreneurs out there and innovators. How do you know, let's say you've already installed EMR, you've already installed your telehealth program, and where do you know where to target next? What's the next piece that you want to get better? You want to innovate? You want to find how to make it more efficient? How do you think through that? Yeah. So, well, there's two things I think of when you ask that question specifically. One is around how do I get better? Well, I've got to look at what the the numbers are showing. What's the data saying of where the pain point is? Then all efforts go there to address that. So it may be that a workflow is not right. It may be education needs to be done. There's a whole host of things there. So that's one angle of where do you go next? The next angle is, you know, if it's a telehealth program or something else, you know, is there another service I can offer? And that's all feedback from your patients or your customers. It's all around what the need is. There's no point in building something if it's not addressing a problem or a need. Those are the two things that jump in my mind immediately. And I agree completely with that. We actually have a very, very formal process that we honed over many years in terms of what is the value of a particular project? How many members are affected by it? What is the net benefit across that population? What is the cost of doing it, the opportunity cost of other projects that might not happen? And so listening to the customer, both the clinicians and our members, is really critical. But there's another side to this, and they're what we call insertion projects. And so an insertion project in the parlance of Kaiser Permanente is where an executive goes to a conference like this, sees something that they think is really cool, and they come back and say, we got to do this tomorrow. Priority. (laughs) Yeah, priority number one. And it's really interesting resolving the competition between those that have a clear value proposition based on our criteria. So we actually added a criteria called executive sponsorship (laughs) specifically to reflect the fact that when they come back from the conversation, they get buttonholed on a board meeting, some other board, and they come back and they say, we got to do this right away. And sometimes you can talk them out of it and sometimes it's appropriate and sometimes you just have to suck it up and do it. And so there's a lot of competition for resources. There are a hundred times as many projects in the queue as we can possibly do a hundred percent of the time. Let's come back to resources because some of us, we live every day with just a certain amount of resources and that's running our operations. It's our physicians. It runs the whole gamut. And yet there's many places to innovate, many places to enter new technology in it and implement new technology. Can we do two at once? Can you do more than one? And how do you do that? We manage over 200 projects simultaneously in the largest region, that being Southern California, and it's comparable in Northern California and somewhat less in the smaller regions. But we have about 500 people permanently dedicated to project implementation in the health tech space. 
Yeah, I'd add to that too, just to say that, you know, it really goes back to the planning to understand the lift it's going to take. How many hours, how many people? And if you do the planning right, then you'll make sure you don't overload and collapse the system in the process. So it all comes back to the planning. But again, we also do numerous projects all at once. We've got some questions from the audience. Top-down decisions versus bottom-up innovation. Any comments? Top-down decisions versus bottom-up innovation. Where is the role for each? Every culture is different, and the culture I'm most familiar with, the top-down decisions, the hardest part about them is oftentimes members of the C-suite have conflicting and competing top-down decisions that are not necessarily reconciled before they get to us. So our teams are often in a very difficult position of not only having to reconcile one top-down decision with the feedback we're getting from users, but we'll have three or four competing urgent top-down decisions that cannot be done at the same time. And that's a very delicate process of managing up. You know, I think they both coexist, but I will say I'm a huge fan of reverse innovation because of the buy-in that you have from the users. Usually those are the ones driving it. They're the ones that will be right there to support any policy change. They'll call their constituents. They'll advocate for it. They'll make it happen. If it's a top-down and there's not support, it's just, it feels like there's a lot more friction. So usually when it's the reverse, there tends to be more adoption. John, you with a large organization and you've implemented a lot of EMRs and different projects. When it comes to the guiding principles, how do you stay on guiding principles in such a large organization? Is it project by project? I mean, you mentioned it and you use it a lot, but how do you focus and scope it to something as big as Kaiser Permanente? We use the same rigorous methodology in every single project and applying the same set of principles to different projects will lead to different strategies for each of those different deployments. And, you know, there's a lot of variables that go into that. I have to say the most critical input to reconciling how you adapt the principles to different projects comes from experience. You cannot teach this stuff cold. Having someone who's done 20, 30, 50, 100, 200 projects from inception to completion there's no substitute for that because there's so many ways things can go wrong. Like I said earlier, having tried most of the ways that don't work, there are very few that do work. And it's the voice of experience that brings those to the surface. Yeah. Christy, you even have the bigger, a different concern, and that is Amazon being a different model for healthcare. You're rolling out healthcare within a different model. Yeah. So how do you focus, how do you keep them focused on the principles for the healthcare piece? And they've got this huge other piece and they're inventing more and more each day. Yeah, well, a couple of things. Well, first of all, it's dramatically different than the environment of doing this in the health system and that environment. But you know, within Amazon, there's lots, what I would consider just lots of startups within Amazon City. <laughs> and each one of those are laser focused. And so people are always asking me, oh, how is this the same as Haven and PillPack and Alexa Health and all that? We're all individual groups working against a project plan and there isn't that crossover. It's laser focused. 
And so I think that kind of discipline is critical for success. So we've set that up that way. The other is around as clinicians and people from the health system are coming into Amazon, there's a translation that's occurring. And so we've got engineering and tech folks and health folks and then a social anthropologist sitting in between us <laughs> trying to figure us all out. But there really is, a, it's a healthy environment, but one where we're really learning each other's language, which is an exciting part too. I want to just key off that for a second because I agree so strongly with the, what some of the cultural anthropologists and ethnographers mm. call the conversational model. Yeah. So the reason that the EHR became the EMR, most people don't know why the electronic health record emerged out of the electronic medical record. Nurses don't recognize electronic medical record as something that they own and participate in, whereas an electronic health record is. And that was very much reflecting the conversational model of nursing and it seems like a trivial change, but it actually was very salutary to uh, the project. And that's true of so many things. You can use the exact same words in front of cardiologists yep. and primary care docs and nurses and pharmacists and get very different reactions. Yes. An earlier panel was talking about translation from Chinese. Well, translating from English to English can be more difficult. Yeah, <laughs> so true. We have time for one more question, and we should be honored because Michelle Obama is one who put this question through, and she's out there somewhere. So, Michelle, this is for you. Amazon is known for being able to experiment quickly and effectively in highly regulated industry like healthcare. How do you experiment and scale quickly? Yeah, that's really good. So for those that don't know, I joined Amazon in April. So um, <laughs> there has been no sleep. Yeah, it is fascinating, first of all, because it is there's a plan, you go and you iterate on that. You don't wait. And I think that's the biggest difference. And I mentioned that there and maybe it resonates to some of you, but we develop a plan and we move because we want the feedback very quickly from the users of that. And so our program is one for our employees and their families. And so we go very quickly and we get feedback constantly and we review every single word everybody says. And for those that haven't ever heard the story of the low flying hawk in Amazon, basically that was the person's handle and they would send in their feedback to their retail when retail was started. And really the whole entire platform at that point was being built on this one person's feedback. And they found out he was spending what, like $2 a month. I mean, it wasn't even a high utilizer, but it was a very vocal person. But you know, there's got to be something said for that. They're really listening to every single feedback and adjusting the product. So we're moving very quick. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of tension when you do that, when it's healthcare and there is a person on the other side getting health services. So we're constantly Constantly juggling that and really going through a process to evaluate, are we ready? Is the operational readiness includes a health safety piece as well. Christy, John, thank you very much. Wonderful information, very significant for this course and this topic and where we are today. So thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Season 3 of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast and that you heard something that will trigger your curiosity and advance your digital journey. Many of the examples we bring you are outside of orthopedics, but the technologies and solutions we present are all eminently translatable to musculoskeletal care. Please consider giving us a review on your podcast platform so other people can find us. More importantly, tell a friend about our amazing community. We look forward to sharing the next episode with you. I am your host, Stefano Bini, founder and chair of both the Digital Orthopedics Conference San Francisco and this, the Digital Orthopedics Podcast.